This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, family lawyers Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink will return to take your calls and answer your questions about family law matters, whether it's custody and support or division of property or any family law issue. Our guests will offer their opinions when you call. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're watching this week. While the Bank of Canada has been quite careful to include Canadian record-high household debt in all their recent statements, Statements. It seems our next-door neighbors have heard the message, too. U.S. consumer borrowing rose in September at a very modest rate. The Federal Reserve down there saying overall consumer borrowing increased, well, almost 3% to 4 plus trillion dollars. Student and car loans up a bit, credit card debt down. Americans are spending at a solid pace, but in recent months have relied less on borrowing. Steady, modest income growth has enabled consumers in America to shop more while also stepping up saving. A separate government report showed that spending rose in September and incomes increased more, so the savings rate went up to 8.3%, the highest in six months. And here in Canada, the savings rate is very disappointing, with some provinces reporting savings rates near zero. Consumer borrowing is also closely watched for signs about the strength of consumer spending, especially at this time of year. This all connects to that story last week about how many of us are planning to spend less this holiday season. Well, by now you probably heard a ban on the sale and use of consumer fireworks could be in place across Vancouver by 2021. City councillors voted on Tuesday in favour of a motion to prohibit fireworks, but the ban will not completely snuff out all the colourful, noisy displays around town. Staff will prepare a report on implementing the ban, but it has to include exceptions and exemptions for things like Chinese New Year and Diwali or our celebration of light every summertime. Vancouver's current regulations limit firework sales to permit holding adults in the week leading up to Halloween. And fireworks can legally only be set off on October 31st. There's a law that's closely followed, huh? One councillor unsuccessfully argued the ban will force firework sales underground and may actually raise enforcement costs. But he was outvoted as the majority looked at a $360,000 damage tab for this year alone and decided to go for a fireworks ban effective 2021. Airbnb said this week it collected and paid more than double the provincial sales tax the government expected in the first year of the agreement between the two. The province said "Eh, we should do about $16 million in tax from the homeowners. On Wednesday, the company said it sent the province almost $34 million. So it's not clear whether the number of Airbnb rental providers is increased or the number of visits to them is increased or perhaps even both. Airbnb said it also collected and paid over $9 million in municipal and regional district taxes, which is passed on to promote local tourism. This amount also blew by the province's estimate of $5 million, which is raised by charging an up to 3% tax on Airbnb short-term rentals. Of that $9 million, 
million, about three and a half of it is allocated to tourism Vancouver. The province's tax agreement is with Airbnb, a much larger market share of listings in our city than any of the other short-term rental sites like Expedia or TripAdvisor. And it's an annual reminder of the season and this week a Vancouver tradition for over four decades, the Circle Craft Christmas Market opened again at the Vancouver Convention Center. It's on all weekend through Monday, and this year there are 60 new exhibitors who will gather to show their wares, fine artistry, and modern design, bringing the total to 300 artisans under one roof. As in the past, there will be live demonstrations by the artists, and of course you can talk to them about what they're up to. Open tonight until 9, tomorrow till 7, and Monday from 10 to 5 at the Vancouver Convention Center West. This may be the place to find that gift for the hard-to-shop-for person on your list. Certainly there are items you won't find anywhere else. The Circle Craft Christmas Market, a Vancouver tradition, back on again. Those are some more of the week's top consumer stories. On deck, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunick back with us to take your calls on family law matters. Oh, what the heck, Andrew? Let's just open the phone lines. We're going to go through the formality in a couple of minutes anyway. Free legal advice? Are you kidding? 604-280-9898. Family Law on Vancouver Consumer after this. Welcome back to the program. I'm Sterling Fox. In studio with me is Stuart Zuckerman, founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, and senior lawyer Ron Hunink, both back with us on the program. Gentlemen, welcome back to Vancouver. It's great to have Vancouver Consumer, rather. It's great to see you both. Great to be here. Good to be here. All right. Now, we have, uh, we've got a lot to get through today. And, Stuart, well, let's, let's talk about some myths. You and uh, Ray Ferraro are on television. I was yes. watching a hockey game last yeah. night, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and up you popped on my TV screen with Ray, and you have this whole myth thing going on. So let's stick a pin in a few of those myth balloons. And Ray asks you about perhaps one of the most widely held myths. The law tends to favor women when it comes to custody issues. Right. And that that is a myth. The the law favors uh, the best interests of the child. And the law favors the parent who has had primary care of a child up to the date of separation, such that That's where the myth arises is is it's most commonly the case that the mom, the woman, is the one who's home with the kid while dad is going to work during the week. And so because mom has been in a primary caregiving role, when the parties separate, mom tends to be in a stronger position to have primary care going forward. But if it was the dad was the stay-at-home dad and mom was working from Monday to Friday, then dad would be in the position to have primary care on separation. So it has nothing to do with the gender of the parent. It has to do with whichever parent was already in a primary caregiving role tends to have a, a, a greater role or more likelihood of having primary care post-separation. Although I can tell you that we've been to court in many, many cases and gotten 50-50 custody arrangements post-separation. Uh, but it is the fact with younger children that are not in school yet, where one parent is is the stay-at-home parent, usually that parent continues in that role. Okay, now, so uh, with that in mind, in terms of the gender bias involved in that myth, does the law favor women when it comes to spousal support along that same vein? Right. And this again, is, widely held, yes, Stuart. It's widely held, and, and again, it's there. there isn't a bias in the court. There's, you can just as easily get support for a man to be paid by the wife to the husband as from the husband to the wife. The myth arises from the fact that historically, the higher income earner in a couple has usually been the man. So you go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 
usually men were earning more than women. And so when the parties separate, it's the higher income earning spouse who will be ordered to pay support to the lower income Correct, earning yeah. spouse so that both parties suffer a similar diminution in lifestyle, a similar adjustment to their, you know, you have, a let's say the husband earns 100000 a year and the wife earns 30000 a year. So they've been living at 130000 a year as a couple for right. many years. Mm-hmm. Then they separate. The husband's still earning 100, but the wife's only earning 30. Well, the, so the wife is dropping from 130,000 a year family budget to 30,000 a year. The husband's dropping from 130,000 a year budget to just 100,000 a year. So the husband has a very small diminution in lifestyle in that case. So he's ordered to pay spousal support to the wife. So her income comes up, his income comes down, and they both end up with the same economic suffering of lifestyle diminution that from the marriage to post-separation. So that's the idea, is that the higher income earner spouse is going to provide money to the lower income earning spouse so that they share the burden of living in two separate households. So the emphasis is not on male-female, it's on whoever makes the most dough. Yes, and in fact, going back to the 1980s, one of our Court of Appeal justices said in a case about spousal support for a man that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So she, you know, she was saying that the law is the exact same, whether it's a man or a woman, it's just that the higher income earner is going to be ordered to pay to the lower income earner. Okay, Ron, I've got one for you, and then we'll go to the phones because it's already getting busy. And Vanessa will take your call in just a few seconds. But here's one for you, Mr. Hewnink. I have to be separated for one year before I can go to court. You know, that myth has been responsible for uh, a lot of <clears throat> misery uh, in homes where people stay together a year longer than they needed to. You can, uh, you can leave your spouse, or even not leave your spouse, but declare that our marriage is over. Start your divorce proceeding the next day, have it served that day or the day after, and sort your matters from there. You don't have to suffer that year together before you can start your divorce proceeding. Was there ever a time when that was a requirement, Ron, or how did this myth originate? Well, there's three three ways you can satisfy the court that the marriage is done. Uh, and I'm not using technical language here. One, of course, is cruelty. The other is adultery. And the moment you prove either of those, you're entitled to a divorce. And the other is uh, that you've lived separate and apart for a year. Now, you don't have to have lived separate and apart for a year when you start the divorce proceeding. So you start it, and oftentimes you're going to be waiting a year to get a trial date. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you don't have to put up with that untenable situation for a whole year. You can start now. Okay. Uh, generally, just before we get to, to our first call, uh, in terms of the trial date, between the two of you, and you're both veterans with years and years, decades of experience, out of a, a ballpark average, Stuart, uh, of the total numbers, say, of 100 divorce issues, cases that come before you, how many of those actually go to court versus uh, how many get resolved in other ways? Very few uh, go to court in terms of a trial. Uh, certainly in, in out of those 100 cases, there may be 30 or 40 or 50 that go to what are called chambers applications, where you go to court for an interim order on a temporary matter, so, right. such as custody arrangements, sure. right. child support, spousal support. But that's not a trial, That's is not it? a trial. Right. No. Uh, and that, that those cases don't involve testimony, they involve affidavits. But in terms of a trial, the statistics, I believe, kept by the Supreme Court Registry are something like 95% of cases that are commenced in uh, under the divorce registry do not proceed to trial. So only about 5% of the cases that are filed actually proceed to a trial. Well, even knowing that math is kind of a bit of a myth buster too, because I think, Ron, the impression is everybody goes to court and dukes it out, and, and that's just not the case at all. You've hit the nail on the head. Right. Let's yeah. go to the phones. Uh, we'll start in Burnaby. Vanessa, thank you for waiting, and good afternoon. I uh, have a question. My spouse and I always had uh, separate finances, 
uh, during the marriage, I purchased expensive ring, and now uh, that we are separated, my spouse wants half of the ring. Oh, right. Uh, an item of jewelry, was it, it? but it was purchased while you were together, correct? That is correct, yeah. Okay. All right, okay. Stuart. So there, there is recent uh, case law on this topic, that just a decision that came out in August of 2019, although it does cite prior cases from 2015. And under the, new, under the old act, prior to 2013, um, usually we would have said that jewelry bought as a gift for either spouse during the marriage would not be divided between the spouses. Right. But under the new act, gifts from third parties can be excluded from division. So if you got a gift from your mother-in-law of a ring as a birthday present or, or something like that, that you can exclude that from the pot, family pot when dividing. But if the spouses themselves gift jewelry to each, each other, other. Or, or they themselves during the marriage buy jewelry for themselves, it's going to be thrown into the family pot. So the case that just came out that I have a copy of with me, because um, I did intend to talk about it today, is uh, a case where the husband bought jewelry for the wife during their marriage uh-huh. from a, a government website um, uh, that was quite expensive. And then when his birthday came around, she encouraged him to buy a Rolex watch for himself from the same website for $17,000, and he did that, and then they separated some years later, and she said, I want half of the value of that Rolex, and he said, I want half of the value of your engagement ring and the gold that we bought you. And the court said, all of it, all of the gifts between the spouses uh, are part of the family pot and are subject to a 50-50 division. And the judge ordered that if they couldn't agree how to divide it, then they would get it appraised and they would have to pay each other half of the difference between the value of their jewelry. So the answer to Vanessa is that whether you bought the ring or whether your spouse bought it for you as a gift... It's common property. The presumption is that it's common property. That is subject to the possibility of evidence that convinces the court that the piece of jewelry was an absolute gift. So if there's evidence that 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 a spouse bought a gift for a spouse and said this is yours absolutely I'll never seek a piece of it it's always yours no right. matter what happens to us that's a gift and and the and the court can say that's not going to be divided but the general rule the starting rule is going to be that all the jewelry of both spouses including the engagement rings is in the family pot well this is new isn't it different yes. stuff Vanessa interesting call thank you for that Linda in Ladner is up next Linda thank you for waiting welcome to the program thank you go ahead to our lawyer guests Linda please Okay. Um, with what you had said about separation and divorce, um, if the one year of separation has already happened and the paperwork for the divorce has been filled out by both parties and it's consensual, what happens next? Does the paperwork just go in someplace or do you send it in or what's the next step? Well, I'll take this one. It's, it's, all, it's all do it yourself uh, in terms of... Uh, the government isn't going to do anything for you. So you can you can hire a lawyer to do it for you. Or in your case, it sounds like you're doing a joint divorce. Is that right? Right. Okay, so if you do a joint divorce, uh, uh, in fact, you can go online and look at J.P. Boyd's uh, Family Law Resource. So J.P. Boyd. Uh, okay. And it's it's oriented towards the do-it-yourselfer for the aspects of family law that are do-it-yourself friendly. And this is one of them, uh, assuming you don't have any asset problems. But uh, so getting the divorce itself, you would you would fill out a joint uh, uh, notice of family claim um, and you would file it. 
And you would have to do your second step affidavit, the one where uh, after you prove service, you're indicating uh, that you have indeed been uh, separated and apart for a year and that you've not tried to trick the court. Again, I'm not using uh, the technical language. Uh, then you file it in and, the registry. And the, that if you have children, that child support has been Absolutely. Right. If you have children, right. uh, that, that means extra paperwork, but it's not insurmountable. Uh, then you file. Then it goes into the hopper, the notorious hopper that we uh, family law lawyers complain about. Uh, it can take several months for the Supreme Court to turn around uh, your order. If you have something uh, that is emergent, for example, you've already committed to remarrying and the purpose of remarrying is because you're doing a, you know, for example, uh, um, uh, a test tube uh, pregnancy. Pardon me for uh, not having the technical language on that, but you're, you're doing that and you're just on the cusp of getting to the age where you don't qualify anymore. And I say this because I actually had this arise, but there's in one case, there are other aspects. But if you have an emergency where you have to have your divorce by a certain date, uh, then you can get yourself out of the hopper. But otherwise, you're in the hopper and you're going to wait uh, anywhere between several weeks and several months um, before you're notified that your order, pardon me, your divorce order has been processed. And sometimes that can be as long as six to eight months, depending on the registry that you file your divorce in. So you will find if you file in Vancouver or New Westminster, you'll wait longer for your divorce order to be processed than if you file in the Chilliwack Supreme Court registry, which has less people uh, applying. Interesting stuff. Is this all helpful to you, Linda? It is. I still have one more question. If you can't get off of work to get down to the court to, to file your papers, right. um, can you mail it in or can someone else go on your behalf? There are are registry agents. uh, And the one that we use, uh, no no shameless plug here, is West Coast Title. Uh, But there are many of them. You just Google uh, Vancouver uh, um, court agents, and there'll be a list of anywhere from five to 10. They're all good. And they can officially represent your interests uh, and it's well, all that sort of thing. You now, give them your documents, they file them. L- Linda's talking, and you were talking about a DIY, a do-it-yourself-friendly scenario, and you said this was one of those that is. So what is not? What typically is not a do-it-yourself-friendly relationship breakdown scenario, well, Stuart? Well, any time that you have a dispute, whether it's over assets, over debts, uh, over child support, over who's going to have primary care of the children, um, over what the visitation schedule will be, any of those issues, possession of items in the home, uh, how to divide bank accounts or RRSPs, anytime you have any of those disputes, you, you're not going to be able to file an uncontested divorce because you have those issues. You could do it once you've executed a separation agreement and resolved all those issues, but otherwise you're 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 not you're going to be in a contested divorce rather than uncontested. Divorce. Okay, so uh, and in its uh, that line, Ron, the the line in the sand between doing it yourself and 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 no, you're this is this is not a DIY friendly. I'll it, tell it, you what the line obvious? is. Okay. If you're in doubt, come on out. Get some. Uh, speak to us. We'll tell you whether it's a do a DIY or not. Okay. Our guests in studio, friends, Stuart Zuckerman, the founder, and Ron Hunick, senior lawyer with Zuckerman Law, with offices in Surrey and. Eeltown, uh, occasionally, uh, and online at ZuckermanLaw.ca, Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, ZuckermanLaw.ca. Our phone lines are open. If you would like to join the conversation or just have some questions that you'd like to have answered, uh, you can join us at 604-280-9898. We'll take a break for the news at the bottom of the hour and carry on with family law and more of your calls right here on Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. 
Welcome back to the program. It's Sterling Fox with Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink from the Zuckerman Law Group. Family law matters on the table for discussion. The phone lines are open, 604-280-9898. We're busting a few myths as we progress through the hour. We've done a few already. And, Stuart, here's another one that's, again, this is all widely held stuff. People talk about this over a beer in the bar. For example, if the home is in my name as opposed to joint title, I get more. Yeah, that's a myth. Uh, the, the the division of equity in a home it doesn't matter whose name the property is in. The presumption is that the parties have a 50-50 interest in the increase in equity from the date of cohabitation or marriage to the date of separation. So if the home is in your name because you owned it before you met your spouse, right. then yes, you will get more because you will get 100% of the equity that existed in that home on the day before you began cohabitation. But all the equity growth from the day of cohabitation or marriage, whichever is earlier, forward to the date of separation is divided 50-50. So if you owned a home and you had a $100,000 equity in the home uh, uh, when you first bought it and then two years later you met your girlfriend and uh, you invited her to start living with you and at that date the home is worth $200,000 worth of equity and then 10 years later the home is worth $1.2 million when you separate in Vancouver. That's That's not not too weird in Vancouver, (laughs) is it? So so you would get the first $200,000 back because that's the equity that existed before you began cohab, right. and the remaining million growth in equity would be split 50-50 between the two of you, regardless of who paid the bills, uh, regardless of who did the house care or the child care, the presumption is 50-50, unless the court finds that to be substantially unfair for, for one reason or another. Interesting stuff. Here's one for you, Ron Hunick. If a common-law spouse gets less than a married spouse... Well, a long time ago, that was the case, and the time is before March of 2013. Ever since then, we've had the Family Law Act, and the Family Law Act treats common-law spouses exactly the same as married spouses, so that's a bust. So, But before 2013, there may have been a grain of truth to it, but no, not since. There certainly was a grain of truth, because there, there weren't statutory rights, in other words, rights that, that, that our lawmakers uh, gave to parties. And... It was also so difficult in terms of proving your case previously that most people gave up before they started. And we advised them to give up before they started because it was going to be very expensive. And in many cases, this was before our big real estate boom that we've had now, mm-hmm. it just, even if they were to get everything that they were entitled to under the existing law back then, it would cost probably, uh, pardon me, it would cost more in legal fees than your re- return. But now the law is treating common law parties exactly the same as married parties. Uh, and the the thing that you need to satisfy is you need to show that you've been living together in a marriage-like relationship for two years or more. Okay, so that's... So that's that's the, what common law means. You, okay. In order to be a common law spouse, you have to have been together for two years or more in a marriage-like relationship. Okay, and then once that is ascertained, then for all intents and purposes going forward, you're treated like a married person. Correct. Interesting. Here's one for you, Stuart. Um, Only one exception on that. You can't get divorced. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course, but, but there's still, uh, when common law couples break up, there's still division of property issues. The, so how do you handle that, Ron? If you're in a situation which is a common, a long-standing common law relationship that goes sideways eventually, uh, and there's there are assets and other issues that are common and need to be resolved, and yet there's no divorce possible. How do you resolve it? Well, <clears throat> even for people who are married, 
we will usually start their proceeding under both the Divorce Act, that's federal legislation, and under the Family Law Act, which is provincial legislation. Okay. There's overlap on the support issues, overlap on the kid issues. Divorce Act governs divorce. You can't get divorced under the Family Law Act. Right. And Family Law Act governs division of assets and division of debts. The Divorce Act doesn't touch it. Okay. So if you're common law, we would just bring a claim under the Family Law Act and not under the Divorce Act. Gotcha. Okay. If I have the kids 50-50, then I will pay less child support. So that is not a myth. That is that is true. Interesting. If, if parents have children 50-50, so in Canada, there's something called the Federal Child Support Guidelines. And for each province, there's a table. And the table says if your income is X dollars, then you pay uh, X dollars per year, then you pay Y dollars per month in child support. So for example, let's say your income is 50000 a year, the child support might be around $550 a month. And let's say your spouse's income is 30000 a year. Uh, if you have the kids 50-50, if, if, if you didn't have the kids 50-50, you'd pay that 550 bucks a month. But, mm-hmm. if, but if you have it 50-50, then she owes you child support as well. So her child support at 30000 a year might equal $300 a month. Sure. And yours is 550 So the difference between the two is 250 So you'd pay the net amount per month to her. Instead of paying 550 a month, you'd pay only 250 a month, recognizing that the children are divided equally between your households. Interesting. So that one is not a myth. That's correct. Okay. Well, Ron, is this a myth or not? If I move out before a settlement, I will be at a disadvantage. It is not a myth. It is, it is the truth, but not because of the law. Uh, and this is one of the things uh, that a lot of people get into trouble with. And they come to our offices two or three or four months later after they've already moved out, and they don't realize they've thrown away an important bargaining chip. People split up for a reason. They don't want to be together anymore. Right. They don't want to be in the same space. That's a good bargaining chip. If you happen to move out and you're gone for a few months, you've lost that bargaining chip. There's nothing that prevents you from asking the court to order the house sold, for example, so that you can split your assets. But then you're the one who has to pay for a lawyer to go to court and get that order. And your spouse is sitting in the house saying, make me. Mm -hmm. So it's an important bargaining chip on assets. um, Because once you've got a free bargaining chip, you can bring your partner to the table and get a fair result at lower cost. It's also very important in relation to kids. Kids have, in many instances, a lot of inertia. They love you both, but they love their home too. Sure. And that's what tips the balance. And who the children live with uh, predominantly, or whether it's 50-50, is not necessarily all determined by the children's wishes. But once they get to a certain age, uh, they get get a certain amount of traction. But even without that... If you're the person who's moved out and you've just moved out to a bachelor suite or a one-bedroom place or something like that, your spouse is going to say, well, that place isn't okay for our kids to spend overnight. Sure. And that may or may not gain some traction with a judge. So again, you've thrown away an important bargaining chip in relation to your children. But Stuart, this is so hard because people leave uh, at a height of a a crescendo of emotions. And I'm out of here. I'm going back to mom's. I'm never going to live with you again, blah, blah. And that's that's part of the breakup is the actual departure from the residence. It does often happen And you're suggesting as a strategy that's very poor. Yeah, we we typically, if someone calls me and says, I'm uh, I'm about to break up or we had a fight this weekend and I moved out, I say, uh, my general advice is 
move back in until we've had time to sit down and work out a deal on when the house is going to be listed for sale and who the agent's going to be and right. how you're going to divide things and what the child schedule is going to be. Because if you don't have those things agreed and you just move out, you're definitely putting yourself at a disadvantage. Interesting stuff. Really interesting stuff. Back to the so phones. Really, the difference there is between having to go to court and not having to go to court. Right, right. Okay. And of course, you don't think about that in the heat of the moment. I'm out of here. That's all. And it's been, it's been building for months and all of a sudden the moment arrives and boom, there's a theatrical departure and away you go. Back to the phones, uh, Sam in Vancouver. Thank you for your patience. Hello. Hey, no problem. Hi. Go ahead to our guest, Sam, please. Oh, hi. So um, my question is, um, so me and my ex broke up two and a half years ago um, and he had racked up two credit cards, not too very much. We're talking probably maybe $10,000 here, um, which I was not aware of. And they're in his name only. Other than that, we don't own a house together. And he has a vehicle, which he paid for. I have a vehicle, which I pay for. And I just wanted to do a contest, uh, a non-contested divorce. Okay. But he keeps arguing that there's all these division of assets and debts, and we don't really have anything together except for I guess he thinks I owe for these two credit cards. Ah. Now I've heard I've heard it you know people or maybe I've read it somewhere before that you know the judge will consider not dividing things evenly if it would be unfair to do so. And my question would be, you know, is that something that I could argue in that situation since I didn't know about the two credit cards and they are likely, if the receipts were to be pulled, not spent on anything household-related, but rather, like, guns and ammo yeah. for himself sure. and toys that he bought for himself, which I did not take with me when I left. Well, you've given me the ideal scenario there uh, to, yeah. to get the, res- the actual result that you're looking for. And okay. It, it, if you had come into my office, I, w- I would tell you... Uh, commence your divorce proceeding. Don't ask for anything else. Uh, uh, I'm going to take a wild guess that one of the reasons your husband uh, has got uh, into this kind of uh, debt is that, well, he's not a careful personal manager. Exactly. Okay. So he's not going to carefully carefully manage uh, whether he watches the clock for the two-year mark after you divorce. Because... uh, uh, if you're only claiming a divorce, he may seek yeah. some legal advice. Uh, the person may say uh, she's only seeking a divorce. That's all. Uh, um, you don't have to do anything. You'll get your divorce. You wait your two years. You're scot free. If, okay. however, he files uh, a defense uh, and a counterclaim, in that counterclaim he might ask that you pay half the debt. You've got a fact pattern there uh, that resolves it. Uh, in first instance, so Linda's not on the hook for any of this. Well, stuff. in the first instance, she is, um, but oh, Linda sorry, can Sam. prove that none of those debts were for were incurred for a family purpose, ah. and that will open and close the case. So the presumption of okay. law in the Act is that all debts incurred for a family purpose are subject to a 50-50 split, but that's subject to evidence to the contrary. So if the evidence shows the debt was not incurred for a family purpose, then it won't be split 50-50. Well, that, see, that leads into another one of these myths, or not, Stuart. This, uh, you make the call here. My debts are my problem. Right. So that is that is 
a myth uh, to some in some regard. The, what the law says, the starting presumption for the law is that the debts of each party that they had on the day before cohabitation or the day before marriage, whichever is earlier, is their debt. Right. But the growth in debt from the date of cohab or marriage forward and new debt incurred from the date of cohabitation forward is subject to a presumption of a 50-50 split, subject to that evidence that I said about the fact that the debt may not have been incurred for a family purpose. But but normally debt incurred for to pay for groceries, to pay for meals out, to pay for clothing for either party, all those debts incurred during the marriage are subject to a 50-50 split. Interesting stuff. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we've, we've talked about this before on, on your many appearances on this program. We're always grateful for the two of you to pop in. You have this cute, funny line that you use on TV, call us before your spouse does. Right. And it is funny, and I still chuckle. But in fact... It's a great little line, a tagline for a law firm, but it's also a warning. There is some legal element to that tagline. That's correct. Tell uh, us about it. In, in, in law, not just in family law, in any area of law, there's something called conflicts, client conflicts. And so we have a law firm with 10 lawyers. Um, you know, if somebody calls me out of the blue, I, I don't know whether they their spouse may have spoken with one of the other lawyers in my firm. And if that's the case, I cannot act for them. Okay. So when someone calls our firm, uh, their name is taken and their spouse's name is taken. And we do what's called a conflict check. We check our database to make sure that none of our lawyers have given advice to the opposing party. If we have, then we cannot book an appointment with that person calling in if we've given advice to their spouse. If we have not given advice to their spouse, then they're welcome to come in. And once we've met with for example, the husband, um, and given him advice from from that point forward. Once we've given him advice, we cannot give any advice to his spouse. So if his spouse called the next day and said she wanted an appointment, the conflict a check would show that we've already met with her husband and we could not give her advice. Interesting stuff. So uh, in, there is merit. There's, uh, there's Whoever an, calls us first is the only one that can hire us. Interesting stuff. Uh, uh, well, it's, and it's good to know because, as I say, it, it, I chuckle still, but it, there's there's more than that to, to it, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Okay, good to know. Uh, talking about uh, uh, custody and spousal support issues, Ron, uh, and, and again, realizing how few of these matters actually uh, end up in front of a judge in a full-blown trial scenario. What are the other remedies short of a trial where there is conflict, there are issues of dispute, but not necessarily the will to go to war over them, but to just get it done? We we start by gathering our facts, uh, both about our client and their kids uh, and their spouse, and We'll tell our clients where we think the case will end uh, up if it went to court. Okay. Then we'll typically formulate an offer that we'll send to the other side. Now, this doesn't come, of course, until we've had some financial disclosure. But we try through letters, sometimes through four-way meetings, and if that doesn't work, then through mediation to settle every case. And in some cases, we can settle some of the issues, and there's maybe only one or two left for trial. And all it takes is the, the nudge uh, of the, uh, the big retainer we've got to ask for just before trial uh. to get people at the 11th hour to settle that last issue. And that's why 90 to 95% of the cases do settle before trial. One more call, and we're in Surrey with Stuart on the line. Go ahead, Stuart, please. Yeah, I was just want to know, after separation, uh, if one of your parents is uh, dying, you know, like for inheritance, like uh-huh. how much time How much time down the road, like is it a year or two after, they can kind of react and get some inheritance money, you know? Go ahead. Well, <clears throat> if you and your, uh, your, your wife have split up already and you get an inheritance after that time, that's yours. Your spouse will not get any. 
Okay. And and if you if you received an inheritance while you were still in a marriage, the the, pre- the starting presumption is that an inheritance, as long as it's kept separate from joint accounts when you receive it, right. is excluded property. So normally, a, an inheritance that is you know made from father to son sure, yeah. is not subject to division between that son and his wife, unless it was gifted to both of them, or unless the son, on receiving the inheritance, puts it into the family joint account and uses it for joint expenses and pays off joint debt, then it loses its characteristic as an excluded asset. So many issues to talk about and deal with, and you, of course, do this all the time. We're out of time, and regrettably, because it goes by so fast whenever you're with us. Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink, always a pleasure, gentlemen. Please uh, come back and see us again soon, uh, and uh, we'll have another go at this. It, it's just a nonstop uh, parade of issues and people with good questions. So thanks very much for taking time out of your Saturday. Thanks for having us, and uh, remind your callers to call us before they're supposed to. <laughs> Been a pleasure. <laughs> and you can check them out, too. Get all the details on their website. It's a very good website, too. Lots of resources. Zuckermanlaw.ca. Z-U-K-E-R. Zuckermanlaw.ca. Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink. Thank you, gentlemen. We're back after this. Again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink from Zuckerman Law for another highly informative visit. Thanks for your calls, too. Next week, John Carlson is back with us looking at all the new numbers and offers his take on Metro Vancouver real estate. Time now for Dooley Noted, and this time around, our producer Ben Dooley looks at DNA tests for careless canines and their owners. Thanks, Sterling. It's a problem that has long caused a stink between scratters and pet owners. How to crack down on those who don't pick up their dog's waste. Now, Strata in Burnaby is bringing in a Toronto-based company that uses DNA to pinpoint problem pooches. Poo Prince Canada has set up shop at the Affinity in the 2200 block of Douglas Road. Their mission to collect a DNA sample from every dog in the building. The Strata's amended bylaws require those samples to be collected with the building manager present, with the owners on the hook for a one-time $60 registration fee. Once those samples are collected, the strata can use them to match any poop left behind by an owner in order to levy fines. Here's Poop Prince Canada President Gary Bradamore. Everything is sent to our lab, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where within two weeks you have DNA specific to that dog. Any penalties against the offending owner would be made up of cleaning costs and administrative fees incurred by the building, along with the cost of sending the sample and getting the results, he added. Bradmore said the company worked with a law firm in Toronto to ensure the program is both free to landlords and mandatory for all owners with pets, who are the ones who pay the one-time fee. He said Stratas are able to enforce the company's rules as bylaws at no cost to the board. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thank you, Ben. Remember, it's day is Monday, and the weather forecast looks pretty good, too, but it's Mercury, which is putting on a rare celestial show and crossing the sun in view of most of the world that will also be watching Monday morning. The solar system's smallest planet will look like a tiny black dot on Monday as it passes directly between the Earth and the sun. Unlike a couple of years ago, Mer- Mercury will pass almost dead center in front of the sun. This is about a five-and-a-half-hour event. It'll be visible, weather permitting, in eastern USA and Canada, and the rest of North America, uh, including the West Coast, will catch part of the action. So cross your fingers and hope for decent clear skies on Monday morning. Should be visible between 4.30 and 10, and be careful, too, as telescopes or binoculars with solar filters are recommended. That is our program for today. Again, our thanks to both our guests, Angela Calla, and 
also in our second hour, Ron Hunink and lawyer Stuart Zuckerman. And thanks for all of your calls. I'm Sterling Fox. Uh, thanks especially also to Ben Dooley and Andrew Ferreira, the team behind Vancouver Consumer. And we all hope you'll join us again next Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock for another edition of Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.